This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. this series called 9 to 5, basically we're taking four Sundays over about a two-month period, so it's sort of staggered four Sundays, to talk about work and the topic of work, and um, and particularly how the gospel transforms our view of work. Now we're in session two, session one was a few weeks ago, about three or four weeks ago, where Stan, otherwise known as Adam, um, spoke, or Adam, otherwise known as Stan, spoke on on work, on session one. Don't worry if you weren't there for that, don't worry if you're uh, only here today as a, as, a, as a guest or a visitor. Thank you for coming. Don't worry if this is something which you never want to come back to by the end of it. Hopefully, there should be some real value just standalone in this. But just see it in that context of that four, four Sundays we're talking about. So I'm not going to cover everything that the Gospel's got to say about work, just a, just a little part of it. And the reason we're taking four Sundays to think about this is because work takes, work's a really significant part of our lives, right? Work, work's a substantial, um, central part of many of our lives. And when I talk about work, I just want to sort of, you know, make this really clear. I'm not just talking about sort of the paid employee. If you work a nine to five, um, I, I put myself in that category. You may be someone who um, runs your own business. You may be someone who doesn't have paid employment, but nonetheless works very hard as a, as a mum or, or as a father, as a stay-at-home parent. You may be someone who uh, is unemployed and is searching for work. You may be someone who is unemployed and can't work. But for all of us, this is about how we're spending our time in society to try and give meaningful benefit. Okay? So this is, this is beyond just the standard employees. So everything I talk about there, hopefully that gives you enough of a frame of reference to think this is rele- relevant to you. There's very few categories of people when I was thinking about this that this doesn't already apply to. Um, and it's central to our lives. It takes up, you know, the majority, this is to the, for whatever category you're in there, that's the bulk of your week. It's the bulk of what you're spending your time doing. That if someone asks you, what do you do? It's that, it's that answer that you give. Um, for most of us, we're going to work for about 50 years, uh, maybe more if um, the state pension age keeps going up. Um, and it's, uh, so it's where we spend a majority, yeah, majority of our time and effort. Here we go, you know, austerity and all that. Right. Um, but as well as time, as well as that time that it takes up, it's also a big player on our emotions and our sense of fulfilment and purpose in life, right? It really, like, it's a really big, really big part of what can make us happy or sad or frustrated. And um, if you've ever had the mis- misfortune of being a, in a job that's frustrating, that, that can really get to you. Or if, if the quality of work that you're doing isn't, you don't feel happy with, um, or the environment you're in just isn't, isn't right, it can really affect us, it can really get under our skin. Um, and so it's partly that physical and environmental thing, it's partly that time thing, it's also the relational thing, so who you're working with, that can really sway whether or not you're, you're having a good year or a bad year. Because um, it, it really gets to the core of us, about this, the purpose in life, that we have, that when we get to the end of our lives and we say, you know, this is what I did with my life, the majority of that is going to be work. It's going to be the vast majority of it. Um, and we know it's important because of how we talk about it, right? We talk about people having, you know, we, we aspire to having our dream jobs or um, people striving for promotions or career changes. This is, this is a big part of what we value. And because we place a lot of weight and hope and responsibility on work as a key to happiness and fulfilment, it, it means that if we, if, we, if we get that emphasis wrong on it, it can really throw us off balance. 
Now, when I was preparing for today, I, um, I went back to a book I'd read a couple of years ago in my last job. So before I moved to Channel, I used to work for, um, used to work for Asda. You've just been bought out. Um, and um, <laughs> left, left at the right time. Um, uh, and it's, called, it's by a guy called Alain de Baton. It's called The Pleasures and Sorrows of Work. It's a random cover, but a really good book. And um, he's, he's not a Christian. He's just a secular author. Um, and he actually wrote another book, really interesting, called Religion for Atheists, where he said this. Um, it's a book about um, sort of the benefits of religion for those who, who aren't um, religious. And he says in that book, he says, It's clear to me that religions are in the end too complex, interesting, and on occasion wise to be abandoned simply to those who believe in them. And um, I've got a lot of respect for him as a writer and sort of that, that attitude he takes when looking in on something. Um, and I want to sort of turn that around and see that actually there's loads of really useful stuff about the way that he sees the world as an atheist. It's really useful to us as Christians for understanding how, how we see the world. Um, and, and I'm going to come back to this book a couple of times because he, he's basically a sort of philosopher, social anthropologist sort of guy who just looks on at society and says, why on earth do we do that? And it's a, it's a hilarious book. I'd thoroughly recommend it because he sort of tracks through like 10 really inane careers or jobs, I don't know, the marketing of biscuits, sorry if that's anyone, um, but uh, you know, like, you know what, what's the benefit of trying to get you know, 2% more sales of Mars bars, you know, that, that sort of thing, like, the, the purpose we apply to life and how do, we, how do we get value and purpose out of all of that. So he's got some really interesting insights. Um, and in the opening chapter he calls out, he calls out that, that weight of responsibility that I was trying to get at, that many of us put on work to fulfil us. He says this, that often the modern workplace has an extraordinary claim to be able to provide us alongside love with the principal source of life's meaning. And I think that's true for a lot of people. It's not true for everyone. Not everyone you know, puts all this weight on work. I don't want to sort of create this false straw man here, but there's this real weight that we put onto it and this hope that the career we choose, the job we do, the products we produce are going to be the thing which fulfil us as much as a, rel a relationship or a marriage could fulfil us. And I think that's true for a lot of people. Maybe you know someone for whom that is true, or maybe that's you. So that's why we're focused on work. Now, um, three weeks ago, Adam kicked us off. And um, I just want to pick up from a point that he made in that sermon as to, as to where we're going today. Um, and it's about where work first appears in the Christian worldview. Okay, so where does work come in the Bible story? Um, and the reason, the reason I'm picking up here is that I just think it's so important. It's so important that we, that we get this in our minds. Um, and the reason that worldview is important, that, that Bible worldview or the worldview that we have, is that the worldview that we use to see life affects how we live life. Okay, that, and that's, just want to you know, get that in the mind, because I'm going to be talking about that a lot now. The way we think about work and the place it has in life affects how we work. What do I mean by worldview? What's this, you know, what do, we, what, do, what do I mean by this? This all sounds very heady. When I say worldview... I want you to think about the, pic the big picture you've got of the world, the big story that orientates how you understand what's going on. It's the story that you live by, it's the framework, the, the thing that you use to decide what's going to be important for you in your life, what the decisions you're going to make, the priorities you're going to have. It's the, th it's the thing, it's the story, it's, the, it's your view of the world that serves as your compass through life. And it could be a range of things, so give me an example to try and earth that. You know, if, you could have a really firm belief that when people say, you know, you've only got one life, so live it. You know, that, that's our worldview. You've only got one life, live it to the full. If, if that's your worldview, then the sort of actions, your life that you're going to live is going to be all about trying to pursue pleasure. Because if you've only got one life, live it to the full, live it to the max, then pleasure and, pursu and pursuit of pleasure in life, just sort of simplify this a little bit, is going to be, you know, the, the decisions you make and the priorities you've got. 
And again, maybe you know somebody who lives by that. Maybe that's you. Um, and, the, and maybe you know people who really hold to that. They're, they're going to invest their time and their money and their relationships and woe betide anything that gets in the way to pursuing pleasure. Now, I'm not making a comment as to whether that's good or bad. I'm just trying to say that there's a worldview, and that leads to a certain set of behaviours and actions. And those core values, they, they shape how we live. So what I'm going to do today is take a look at that worldview that the Bible gives us, where Stan sort of left us three weeks ago, the story that the Bible tells of the world and of what matters, and we're going to look at how does seeing, sort of knowing and, and trusting and sticking to that worldview change how you would live. So, you know, to really make this basic, if a Christian really gets what the Gospel's about, what's that going to mean for how we live? Now, the point Adam made was this. He said that in the Bible's worldview... Work existed back when everything was perfect. Okay, back when everything was perfect. So even though work is often difficult and frustrating, and maybe that when I say the word work, and I'm conscious I'm talking about this on a, on a bank holiday Sunday, um, you know, I think I've been stitched up here, but um, <laughs> I, there's, um, you know, look at that sun, I won't talk for long. The um, it, you know, work, work we imagine is like, you know, it's, it's difficult. Work is not easy. Maybe you've got a really simple job. Most people's jobs, even if it's, it's good and satisfying, it's got difficult bits, right? Work is hard. But Adam said that, that work came back when everything was perfect. So for those who are brand new to this, if you're not a Christian, if, you know, if you're brand new to Christianity, I'm going to give you, a, you know, basically a 30-second summary here of what the Bible's story is. So we've got this time back where we've got this God of love, Three persons loving one another in community. And out of the overflow of that relationship and that love, they make this perfect paradise, Eden. Everything's perfect, everything's wonderful, easy, fulfilling, relationships are amazing. And they make people to be a part of that community. They make this space, Eden, but they make people to be a part of it. And everything's perfect and sweet. But then something goes wrong, right? It breaks. Something goes wrong, it fractures. Humanity rejects that relationship with God. We choose to live independently in, in stubborn rebellion from that relationship. That's, that's what we mean by sin. When you hear Christians use the word sin, that's basically what that means. And in that breaking away, we, we call that the fall. So we've had like Eden, this paradise, and, it f- and we fall away from that. And things get broken, hard, and difficult. But then we have redemption. Right? This is where the Christians get really excited. We've got the same God who, reject, who we had rejected is the one who saves. So we've got perfection, breaks down, and then that same God comes and restores that relationship in Jesus. He loves us back into that relationship. And in bringing us back, he starts to make everything right again. So you see the journey that the Bible takes us through until we get to this new Eden, heaven, where everything's going to be perfect again, and that relationship is completely restored. The Bible takes about several thousand pages to tell that story, so I appreciate that's a bit of a simplification. But that's the big picture, right? Um, And so just knowing that story in a nutshell, we might presume at first glance that work is going to come not in that perfect bit, but in that broken bit. But actually, no. Work existed in that perfect bit. We were given work. Given work to do. And the Bible says that that work was fulfilling when we were in Eden. It was the means by which we, we nurtured the world, that we applied ourselves to it, and we blessed others through our work, that it was meaningfully productive work. Now, I don't have time to repeat all that ground about, you know, how we, how we got to knowing that, but um, I'm just bringing it up because I want to hold that. I want to hold that against two other common worldviews, which I think are really prevalent in our society. 
The first is um, what I'm going to call the Greek and Roman worldview. Now, you might think, come on, none of us are Greek or Roman. What are you talking about prevalent in our society? It, it may be old, but I think it still, still applies to us. And, it, it, um, and there's this guy called Hesiod, this guy, right? He, he wrote an incredibly impressive poem that's lasted like 4,000 years called Works and Days. And you might know it because it's got this thing called Pandora's Box in it, right? It's starting to become more familiar. And basically, he sort of paints the, the Greek-Roman view of history, so we've had that Bible story. The story he paints is that there was this thing called the Golden Age, where there was no work. And food appeared out of the ground, there was no need to labour. But then this, this lady called Pandora was given a box and told not to open it. And in it contains all the things that had not been put into that perfect world. And what was in there? Work. Work was one of the things in the box. But she opens the box, and out comes all these things which hadn't been put into the Golden Age. And out comes work. And, it, and so we slip, in the, in the Greek view, from, from this Golden Age into difficulty. Now, on one level, that sounds really similar, doesn't it, to that Christian story we've got. But the key difference, you, know, you, you may have second-guessed what I'm about to say, the key difference is work was in the box, not in the world. Right? The, that, that was the difference. Um, it's that work was unnatural, that, that work was this intrusion into life, which was this thing which got into the way, which was dehumanising, which if, we only, if only we didn't do work, then we'd be able to be proper, fulfilled people. And it's, not, it's sort of like, you know, I think the, the nearest modern-day reality is like hard-five theology of, um, you know, living for the weekend. You know, if I can only sort of get past my working week, spend all my time on my free time, that's when I'm going to be really happy and satisfied. And that's fundamentally different, isn't it, from the biblical worldview. The other, um, the other second worldview, um, which I think is really prevalent, is what I'm, you know, as a broad brush title, I'm going to call the sort of modern scientific view. And, and that says that we're only here today, we're only here in this room and existing in society because of a process of natural selection. And what, what's the implications of that? It says that there's, there's been this ongoing, long-running survival of the fittest. And so we're not here for any other reason but to survive. That's, that's our purpose. And we're here, therefore, because our ancestors were stronger than someone else's ancestors. You know, we are, you may not believe it, we are, you know, the creme de la creme um, <laughs> that have survived over the, over the ages. Um, and in that view, then, work is all about survival. It's about, um, it's about a dog-eat-dog sort of scenario where, where work is unavoidably, therefore, about the accrual of power and profit. Um, it's about winners and losers, it may be about helping others. You know, it's not to say that it's not a charitable dynamic there, but, but that worldview says that, that charity would probably only really be done where it, where it serves to help ourselves. Now, I'm very conscious, I'm just broad, painting some broad brushstrokes here, but I just want to sort of get that across because I, I think there are people who live by that. The people who, you know, for work, this is about what can I accrue? What can I get for myself for my gain? Um, and that work is, you know, work is hard. Work is acknowledged to be hard. This is a survival of the fittest game. Um, but suck it up, ultimately, and get on with it. Crack on. And for those who do it well, will succeed, and those who don't will suffer. Now, why am I saying this? So what, right? So what that the Christians say that work existed before the fall, um, that it was once perfect? Knowing that won't change us. That doesn't... What are you going to do with that? You know, what are you going to do with the fact that work once existed before the fall? Yeah, well, okay... Still got Tuesday to deal with when I get back into the office. What's that, what's, that gonna, what's that gonna make a difference for? Only telling you that bit of the Bible story 
won't change us. Right? That's, just a, that's just a philosophical fact um, for, for, for what was going on back there. There's a, there's a bigger story, and it's when we see that story and reflect on it that it changes us. So what I'm saying is the, the Bible's got this story, but that's not the entirety of the worldview. We need, to, we need to think about the bigger picture. Now, the obvious thing to do now would be to tell you what that story is. I'm not going to do that. Um, I'm going to do what storytellers wouldn't do and go to the end of the story and say, what's, what would the effect be of knowing that story? Okay, so that's what we're going to spend the majority of our time on. Not what the story is, but what's the impact of that story? So not what the worldview is, but if somebody's got that worldview, how do they live? Okay, that's where we're going to go. Um, and to do that, I'm going to go somewhere that a few of us are, are familiar or um, know much about deliberately, which is the first century Eastern Mediterranean. Hands up any specialists? No? Okay, good. Um, already, no. Um, bit of history, right? We're going to see the effect that the gospel had in some of the first communities that, that, where people became Christians. Okay, we're going to do that. In the, now, there's, there's loads of places that you could choose and use the New Testament for to do this. Um, it's sort of scattered throughout, and it's really interesting to sort of just read the Bible as that, sort of seeing what was the impact that the gospel made on like, the Eastern Mediterranean, where the gospel was first, um, first shared. Um, and we, but we're going to look at Ephesians, right? And um, the person who wrote the book of Ephesians, which was a letter to the town of, of the, the Christians in the town of Ephesus, and I think we've got a little picture of Ephesus. Um, so there was this guy called Paul, who was one of the early, if, you, you know, if you're new to the Bible, he was one of the early uh, missionaries, effectively, in Christianity. Um, and he was, he was a leader in the early church, and he would go to new towns, or town, you know, arrive to towns, and he would share this gospel story. And he would see communities change as a result of that. And he would then leave and go to a new place. Um, and he would write letters back to those towns and the, where people had where he'd set up churches, reminding them of that story and reminding them, therefore, how to live it. Okay, so what we're going to read now in Ephesus is that letter after the church has been planted to say, hey guys, remember that story I told you? Remember this is how it should be applying to your lives. And, um, and we're going to look at that now. We're going we're to pick up in um, Ephesians, in chapter 6. This is basically right at the end of the letter. Okay? So as I said, we're going to look at the end of the story. If we just have the next slide up. Um, there we go, right. It says this, right? It says, towards the end of the letter, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters. Now we're going to read the rest of the quote, but I just want to, like, before we get there, just explain what the heck does that mean. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters. Bond servants is a way of translating our word in the Greek that is broadly equivalent to slaves. But lots of our Bibles don't translate it as slaves because when we use the word slave, we, we ha some stuff gets conjured in our mind which isn't really what he was getting at. It wasn't really the social um, structure, the slavery structure that existed in, um, in first century Greece. When we say slave, we think of either um, sort of transatlantic slavery um, of a couple of hundred years ago, or we might think of modern slavery with sex trafficking and, um, and people forced into, um, into occupations. That the sort of slavery that was going on in, um, in Ephesus at the time was a different sort of slavery. Um, now, I'm not making the point here, just to be very clear, to say that the sort of slavery in first century Ephesus was in any way sort of morally acceptable. I'm not doing that. I'm just saying that this is a different sort of slavery, and it's important to understand what sort of slavery it was. All slavery is abhorrent, and actually, as a, as a church, just um, to remind ourselves that we're doing this, we're, we're partnering with um, an organisation in Cheltenham which is trying to help abolish slavery and make Cheltenham a, a slave-free town. We reject slavery and want to be a part of fighting that. Um, but we, I want to make sure we've got a really accurate picture, right? In the first century, slavery was rarely based on race, so it's not like transatlantic slavery. 
Um, it was sometimes based on race, but not predominantly. It was more often about people being born into slavery or selling themselves deliberately into slavery or being taken captive. Um, and so because of that, you got a mix of races. You had a mix of people from different original social classes who were transcended down into slavery. Um, and the treatment of those slaves ranged from um, grossly inhumane through to something akin to um, sort of like a, a domestic servant that's not too dissimilar from what some people may even have in the country today. Um, again, I'm not saying it to defend it, I'm just saying to just got to have a different mind about it. And so we're just going to use the word bondservant. Um, now, also, just be really clear, Paul, when he's writing this, and what we're talking about here, also isn't writing to defend slavery. He's just writing to comment about what Christians should do given the reality of that social structure. He's not saying, you know, we should have slavery or we should get rid of slavery. He's just saying, slavery exists, I'm not going to deal with that. This is how we should get on with living. So that's what's going on here. So he says this, right? Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Masters, talking about slave and now the master in the relationship, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. There is so much that's incredible in here, right? This may be very familiar turf to you, and if, you're, if it is familiar turf, just read it as though you're reading it for the first time, right? Just take a step back and think, what the heck is being like, advertised here? Paul is speaking to slaves and masters, and he's saying, this is, this is how to be a slave and a master if you're going to live out the Christian worldview. And he's speaking at sort of a heart level here. He's saying, this is how the gospel should be changing you. This is the difference it should be making. And it means some pretty revolutionary stuff, right? He says, if you're a slave, if you are a slave, treat your master like you would treat Christ. Anyone been a slave? No, right. Not an easy occupation, right, to say the least. Even if you're in that first century version of it. He's saying, work for your master as though you were working for Jesus. When you look at him, imagine you're working for Jesus. We've got, um, you know those t-shirts, Jesus is coming, look busy, right? I think, you know, partly they're a joke and slightly tongue-in-cheek, but he's basically saying, um, slaves, like, imagine you've got that t-shirt on all the time. And, and don't just like, look busy in the sort of moral sense. Like, look busy and like, genuinely work hard and, and serve them. Serve your master as though you're serving Jesus. So what does this mean, right? It means don't just get the minimum done. Don't just scrape by. It means do a proper job. It means don't grumble. Now imagine Jesus was your boss. Do you think you'd grumble that much? Do you think you'd be you know, radiating this perpetual sense of discontent? No, you'd be, you'd be, you wouldn't be cutting corners, you'd be... Instead, you'd be full of joy, you'd be full of gratitude and thankfulness. You'd be working with everything you've got. You'd be trying to do a proper job and to do everything your master needs done. Perhaps even before he's asked. And then he turns to the masters, right? And this, is, oh, this is incredible, right? It's, it's one thing for the slaves. I think it's perhaps even more challenging for the masters, right? Masters, do the same to them. 
What does that mean for the hierarchy structure? Right, you've got this slave, master's in charge. You're my slave, you'll do exactly what I tell you, and if you step on a line, there'll be serious retribution. No, 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 not in Paul's, not in Paul's mind. Paul says, masters, do the same to them. Why? Because Jesus is your master. You're not at the top of the tree. You are not at the top of the tree. Jesus is at the top of the tree, and Jesus is just as much in charge of you as he's in charge of the slaves. So then, how are you going to do your job, masters? You're going to treat them well. We've just said, slaves, you need to treat your masters well. Masters, you need to treat your slaves well. You need to honour them. You need to care for them. You need to provide for them. You need to make sure that you've given them everything they need to do their job. You need to put reasonable expectations on them. You need to not strike them. You know, stop your threatening. You need to not put these people in a terrifying position. You need to give these people security and stability. It means you need to not show preference to other masters, so other people at your same sort of social grade, rather than showing preference to your slaves. You need to honour these people. You're going to treat them as though Jesus is working for you. Imagine you had Jesus working for you. Well, imagine, the tri- imagine the effort you were put in to be a good boss. You've got Jesus working for you. Well, I, well, I better make sure, you know, there's, you know, at least abiding by the health and safety code, you know, like, <laughs> you know, the absolute... That's like, that's going to freak you out, isn't it? What he's saying here is absolutely groundbreaking. Can you, you know, can you even imagine this, right? Can you even imagine this? Imagine you're, you know, imagine you're the neighbours, right, across the road from... Let's say we've got a Christian master, you know, or we've got some Christian slaves. Imagine, you know, you're a slave owner or master across the road in Ephesus, across the dusty town. Imagine you're seeing the Christians living like this, living by this different standard. Imagine, imagine the master, right? You'd look on, you'd say, what in the world is going on here? What is happening? What has got into these people that, that means they're living like Why are the masters serving the slaves? Goodness me, they're, they're mindful of them, they're, caref- they're caring for them, they're loving them, maybe even like they're part of their family. What on earth has happened to them? And the same with the slaves, right? Imagine the other slaves looking on at their you know, weekly slave get-together. I've got, you know, this is where my history gets a bit foggy. Right? <laughs> they're, wor- they're working as hard as they can. They're trying to, they're, th- these slaves, they're trying to do a good job. They're not trying to sabotage the, what's going on here. They're, they're trying to be friendly, they're trying to be friendly to their master, regardless of whether they're a Christian, right? This is not like, it's not a predicated um, presumption in here that both master and slave are Christian. Yeah. To make that really clear, right? This is not like we've got some lovely little community going on. No, slave, regardless of who your master is, treat them like Jesus. Master, regardless of how awful your slave is, treat them like Jesus. There's no like, you know, only if they're gonna love you back thing. No, um, this, this is regardless of how you're gonna get treated back, love them with everything you've got. Imagine that. Imagine those slaves looking on saying, what in the world has got into these people? What the heck's going on here? Now, the answer is, of course, the gospel, right? So we've, see, we've seen that in that first century Eastern Mediterranean thing that there's this, man, something fundamental is changing in the social structure of Ephesus. The gospel is having an amazing effect. The good news has gotten into these people. They've gotten so mesmerised and caught up in the gospel that they're prepared to let it transform how they treat their slaves. This is like, this is really getting into, this is getting under the skin, this is getting into the nuts and bolts of your life, 
to mean that this is, this is how it affects your, your nine to five. So what's that story then, right? What's the story? Well, it's the gospel, right? When we say the gospel, we mean the good news. It's, it's the story of what God has done for us. And it's about a God who himself has done some work. And it's a God who pours himself out for others. Now, what we've looked at in this quote is the end of Ephesians. We're now going to look at the start of Ephesians. Okay? How, did, how did we get to here? How did we possibly get to here? I'm just going to read a lot of Ephesians 1 now. I want you to hear it as a story of what God has done for us. What God has done to save people. The work God has done. You are, you are okay to amen at any point through this, right? <laughs> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance. In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is the good news which shook up Ephesus. That is the good news which meant that slaves who were being beaten by their masters treated their masters like they were Jesus. This is the gospel that made their masters stop hitting their slaves. That is, that is the change it made. To summarise Ephesians, Ephesians 1, that, that first that intro to that letter, it's saying that we've got this God here who pours himself out for others. It's a God who makes it his job to bless others. None of that in Ephesians 1 should be taken for granted as though, oh, God, of course God's going to do that, God's lovely. God has gone out of his way to love us. He's a God of humility, serving others before himself, serving us unconditionally before we loved him back. God loved us first. God who builds, and it's a God who builds and cares for others. You know, he, he builds this salvation plan. You know, do you remember that story about the whole gospel? We've got everything perfect, we rebel, God chooses to do the saving. We don't work ourselves back into this. God comes and does the saving. We've got a God who, at the, at the, even at that very beginning bit, had created, 
created people not to receive love from them. He didn't say, you know, make these people, they'll be my slaves, you know, just, just to pour some you know, love and service out to me. He didn't, he, he, even when he created us, he did that to share that love that existed in the, in the, in the Trinity, to, 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 to overflow of joy, honour and glory to us. It's a God who's about pouring out to others. And if you've ever thought about... Um, the, the sort of economy that Jesus paints, right? In, you know, when, when Jesus is talking I don't know, in the Sermon on the Mount and things like that, just the sort of idea about how society should function that Jesus talks about. Love your neighbour. Right? Just, you know, unconditionally, love your neighbour. Bless those who persecute you. So even if your neighbour is the one persecuting you, love them. Love them with all you've got. Give, give your wealth so that it can be used for the good of others. The, the economy, the, like the, you know, the, the social practices that Jesus paints are all about giving to others because that's what God's like. God gives out to others. And that's the key to all this, right? Now, when, when I say all this, right, about servants and masters, um, hopefully none of you are slaves. Um, if you are, talk to someone. Um, police or, uh, you know, I don't know, um, talk to someone. If you're a master, um, you know, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't have slaves, so um, you know, we'll, we'll talk to you. Um, but there's parallels, right? So even though we might not be slaves and masters, there's parallels. But some of the stuff that obviously springs to mind, right, is boss and worker. Some of the people in the room are workers, some of the people are bosses, some of you are both. Um, the, the principles still apply. The principles still apply. God has been working, to, God has been a blessing to us, and so that the principle is that we should then be a blessing to others. That's what's going on here. We will do our work as though we are doing it for him. Now just take a moment to think about that. Right? Just imagine who your boss is, or if you've not got a boss, like who, who's working under you. And just like, I, I can't answer this question for your, all your scenarios. Right? If, you're, if, you know, if you're a mum and a child, you know, whatever it is, just, just take a moment to think, if it was Jesus in that, that I was working with, what would I do differently? I, I can't answer that for you. I, I can't answer everyone's scenarios. But just take a moment to think, just imagine what that would be. How, wh- what, what would you do differently? Now, what's interesting at the end of that um, Ephesians quote, right, is, is that final sentence there. We are, we are his, God, talking about God, we are God's workmanship, created in Jesus Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear, when I, you know, when, whenever I hear that sentence or, you know, or similar things said by a Christian, you know, good works, I think largely about some spiritual activity, um, some, some sort of slightly ethereal thing that might mean you know remembering to pray for people, might mean being on a church rotor, might mean um, going out of my way to be a, maybe maybe to do some like social good, you know I'm going to you know serve do some charity activity for a certain amount of time. That sort of good works, right? Remember how this letter ends. This letter ends with getting into the economy and social structure of the town. It ends in the real nine to five application of what the gospel does. Good works here, you know, so just you know, read that sentence 
as we, we've been created by God. We are the products of God's work if you're a Christian and the gospel has hit you, created in Jesus Christ, for good works. God has worked in us. Why? So that we could work in others. There's this water flow sort of effect, waterfall um, sort of effects of all this, right, that's, that's being painted there. Um, when Jesus talks about building the kingdom, he talks about it in really concrete terms. You know, Jesus is saying, you know, repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand, and Christians are invited to become a part of building that kingdom. What does building a kingdom mean? You know, that sounds pretty out there. It means really practical stuff that's in the here and now. Tim Keller says this. He says, the very actions of daily life, of work, uh, the very actions of daily life, of work, are spiritual and enable people to be blessed and experience God in the world, not away from it. Last time I um, got to talk, um, a couple of months ago, I, I said that um, if, you're, if you're not a Christian, you're here today. Great, thank you for coming. You are, you are hearing what we believe. The best place you can see what we believe is not here, but is in our lives. And that's a challenge to us as Christians, because apparently, apparently the gospel should be affecting us so much, like it's getting so deep into us, that people should be able to experience the gospel at 11 a.m. on a Wednesday. Yeah, yeah. Right? You know, that, that's hard. Or maybe like, you know, grave shift at like 3 p.m. on a Thursday, you know, when people are really flat. You know, that's, when, that's when the gospel hits. You should be able to see that. So if you're a Christian, when you're thinking about good works and what this means, we should sort of remember this for like all Sundays when we have a sermon or whatever, that try, try to think about this, about how am I going to apply this, not to the bits of exception in my life, but to the thing that takes up the most of it. Because if we can't do that, the world ain't going to see it. And we earnestly sang a song before, didn't we? God light a fire inside our souls that the world would see it. We can't be sincere about that if we don't say, right, well, I'm going to let it change how I relate to my boss, how I do my work, how I do my work before my boss is asking, you know, all that sort of stuff. So we need to see this, right? We need to let it include work. So if, um, if you're a Christian, it's very important for you to know how you're doing that. Um, it's so important to be able to connect our work to our worldview. And, I, and as I said, you know, maybe this is a bit of that get out of jail free card. I can't apply that for you to all your different circumstances. We all have very different lives. But hopefully you can see that principle, right? Of, we get to see it worked out as an example with the, um, with the slaves and masters, but we see the core principle of be a blessing to others um, as the thing which rides through. So what does that mean, right? Just sort of thinking about work as a whole. What, you know, some summary points for Christians approaching work. I think it means two things. We should choose what work we do so that we make sure the work we are doing in its very nature is a blessing to others. That doesn't mean you need to all, we all need to go and quit our jobs and join like the third sector charity area to do that. No, the, the Bible is so much more rich than that, of saying actually we can be a blessing to others through producing really good products. If, we, if we're producing something that's a, you know, a meaningful benefit and it's, it's a good thing to make for someone else. If you're a, if you're a farmer, it could be could be doing a service. If you're in the service sector, I don't know, let's say you work for a management consultancy firm, do a really good, like, do a really good service. That's a, that's a thing someone needs and they're paying you for it. D do a good job of that. It's everything. It's everything. But we should choose our work. So there's, there's, you know, there's a couple of categories of work, basically, where it's pretty hard to see in the Christian worldview that you, if you're doing that, you, you're going to be a blessing to someone. And that's largely you know, being a slave owner. Um, 
pretty hard to see how choosing that career path is compatible with, um, but, but they're pretty outlying cases. So, so, so I don't think many people need to take an action there of choosing to change career, but think about how what you're doing, the very nature of it is a blessing to people, and then think about how you do it. So what am I doing and how is that a blessing to people? Make, my, make that mental connection between the gospel and what you're doing in your day-to-day -day job. And then think about how you're doing it. So I'm, I've got this career, I've got this job. How am I now going to do it? How am I going to do this in a way which really honours and reflects the gospel? I've got to be able to connect that. It's something actually which, um, I've lost the book, which Elaine de Baton sort of says is like basically utterly critical. Like if, you can't, if you can't connect what you're doing to a purpose then we just sort of get left adrift. Um, I think that's a really interesting insight that, that he has. Um, so decide what work to do on the basis of whether it's going to be a blessing to others and then decide how to do it. Um, because that's what God has done for us, right? God has chosen to be a blessing to us and then chosen to go about that in a way which would be the maximum blessing to us. So we've seen how the gospel changes how Christians, how Christians work, right? How it shakes it all up. And it puts serving others at the centre. Why? Because God serves others. But I'm only, um, only too easy aware, easily aware of how easy it is to, to, let, to forget that. To forget that, right? The gospel, yeah, the gospel is this amazing thing. Man, you know, usually by Monday, I've forgotten that. I just, I get that wrong. I, I don't let it permeate in. So this is not me sort of just, you know, firing sort of this, you know, tennis ball at you and saying, right, you, you ready? You're like, take it, go, off you go. No, this is, this is me saying, like, this is some strategies for, like, how to... Or, or things to remember or watch out for during the week. How do we remind ourselves? Um, and particularly, how can we see ourselves starting to believe other worldviews? So, you know, I talked at the start about common worldviews that affect us. I just want to get a bit more precise on that, about other things which just are really prevalent around us, and we just need to watch out for that. And there's two that I just want to sort of pull out, really, which is that, um, one, for, a lot, for a lot of people, a lot of people um, work is about wealth acquisition. Work is about accruing money for personal gain. Right? That's like a, a driving force. And the gospel, like, the gospel challenges that. It looks it head on in the eye and says, actually, no, for a Christian, no. That's not what it's about for you. Work is not about wealth acquisition. And, and for, for people who, you know, or for where we're affected by that, where we believe that, the, the sort of way that works out is maybe discontentment with your salary. Maybe it's about, um, maybe it's about uh, using your work to... You know, so you focus on your work as something which enables you to be a consumer. So you're always thinking about, oh, yeah, get this. I could spend this money on like buying this thing because that's maybe going to give me this social status or something, or that's going to give me this satisfaction. You, your your work serves a purpose solely for you of, of getting that money to be able to, to spend on stuff for yourself. Um, maybe 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 it's about hoarding your money. Maybe that's how it works out for you if, you, if you're finding yourself believing this. It's all about trying to keep holding your money. Maybe you're really tight with your money. You don't, you don't, you're not generous towards people. Well, the gospel looks that, looks that right in the eyes and um, it says, don't use your money to fulfill yourself. Don't use money to be a master over you. Use, use the money you've got from your job to be a blessing to others. So even, you know, how, you know this is where it gets really hard, isn't it? You know, Okay, I've ticked the box. I've chosen a career that's going to be a blessing to others. Tick the box. Like I've, you know, I'm even doing my job in it the way which is a blessing to others. The gospel says it goes even further. It's like the, the fruits from all that. Use that as a blessing to others. And that's really hard, isn't it? That's really hard. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not perfect at this by any means, by any stretch of the imagination. But the gospel challenges on that. It says be a blessing to others. 
we've got a, um, an objective as a church, a, a challenge that we've set for ourselves, that we would be giving away 20% of the money that we all put into the pot to be a blessing to other initiatives beyond, uh, beyond um, God First. Be that helping the Allens go to uh, plant a church in London, other church plant initiatives, charity things, social contributions, those sorts of things. Giving away 20% of the money. Now, when you just think, think about how far down the line that is, right? So, you know, chosen the job, doing the job really well, giving the money away. We're now in the pot of money that's resulted from that, and we're choosing as a church to say, right, we're not going to let the buck stop here. We're not going to, you know, celebrate all and just sit in this money. We're going to take that money and give it away to other people. We're going to let the, the gospel run all the way through us. And that, and that is really, uh, it's re- I, you know, I just want to applaud the elders who've set that as an ambition, because I think that's an incredibly, um, it's one ambitious, it's, it's, it's faith-filled, um, but I just think it's a really great example of how the gospel should be affecting us. And we've all got a part to play in that. So we may not be the ones spending that money at the end of that 20%, but we in the attitudes we apply to how we use our money are the ones that can enable that to take place. Um, through some of the stuff I do in the church, I, um, I'm, I'm sort of given like a, just a sight of the budget. Um, through the investment we have made in, in lots of things, particularly through, uh, through the, the, taking um, Christopher on as a member of staff, we will run out of money at some point. Um, and this is not to sort of be alarmist, but it's to say that this is a faith-filled position to say we are choosing to grow as a church, we're investing in the need for staff to, to help with that. Um, we're trusting that the gospel is going to really get under our skin. So, um, you know, let's hope it does. Uh, otherwise, um, we'll be out of business. Um, so, but that's, but that's a be- I think that's a much better position to be in than, no, we're, we're, just, we're just going to keep this money. We're not going to spend it. We're not, going to, we're not going to choose to be a blessing. We're not going to choose to grow. We're just going to sit on what we've got. We're going to trust that the gospel works through us. Yeah, um, so don't use your money for yourself. The other, the other you know, we're getting re- really near the end now, right? The other, um, the other prevalent story in our, in our culture is that profession, that the career you choose, the job you've got, is what is going to give you fulfillment in life. You know, I've got to make sure I choose the right thing. What is that thing? What's that job that's going to give it to me? I really struggled with this for a few years. Really, really struggled with it. Um, just didn't know what, what's the thing I should do? I was really envious of other people, particularly peers that have gone to do different jobs. Um, and apparently it's harder for millennials, of which um, apparently I'm in that bracket. Um, status anxiety stuff, right? Uh, the, the, uh, allegedly, the dream is that we should all be working in Silicon Valley, producing some tech product, where ideally, eventually, we'll have our own uh, tech business and we'll be CEO of that, and th- that's like the dream. You know, if only I can sort of find that thing. Um, hoping, hoping for a job that's simultaneously going to give us satisfaction, joy, and a sense of coolness, right? But, um, but actually, our... our the gospel says our primary calling is to serve God and bless others. And that's where fulfillment is. And that is just so liberating, isn't it? Because it means we don't all need to pile into one job category, like, get me the cool job. Actually, no, this is about saying, the gospel says, no, wherever you are, as long as you're doing a job which is of meaningful benefit to other people, yeah, you can work through that. That's great. How like, liberating is that? Like, you know... Choose whatever career you're in, whatever your career in, there is real purpose and benefit. There is like cosmic purpose to it. Yeah. And that is really like so liberating. Yeah. Um, so no matter how mundane your job can feel, if you're being a blessing to others through it, that's what it's about. That's what it's about. Um, so finally, right, finishing up, um, you've, got, you've got a choice, right? Which, you've got a choice as to which worldview you live by. 
And I just want you know step back, a bit of metadata now, but you know meta sort of perspective about how I'm talking about this sermon. I've not I've not chosen to say, right, Christians, this is how you should be doing work. Do this, do that, do that, do the other. It's not my emphasis. It's not my emphasis. My emphasis is on we've got to get the world view. You've got to get that. There's no point trying to strive on these little bits. Detach from that, you're not going to get there. It's going to be short-lived, you'll burn out. You've got to get the gospel. And it's only by getting the gospel that we're really going to get the breadth of working out for what it should mean in our lives. So if you're not a Christian, right, if you're, you know, if you're not a Christian, I'm not, um, I'm not asking you to work differently, this is not a sort of moral tale. I'm asking you to consider the gospel, right? I'm asking you to consider, is that story a good story? Is it a better story than the story you live by? Is it a truer story than the story you live by? I'm asking you to think. I'm not asking you to come to an answer to that immediately. That takes time. But I'm saying there is a, there's a story there which we believe is, is true and is better than the other stories out there in the world. Yeah. And it makes a real difference. And maybe you see some of that difference in us. So think about that story. Um, there's a whole load of ways you can do that. Um, if you want to you know, practically how to do that, come, come and speak to someone. Um, but take the time to think. Consider that. If you are a Christian, remember that it's true. Remember that we believe it's true. Remember that it's good and that it should affect everything. Remind yourself of the gospel. Approach Sundays, right? The Sundays are one of the biggest blessings we've got to remind each other and encourage one another that the gospel is true and that it's good. Um, let it change how you work. That's everything I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say. We, um, we're going to break bread and, and drink wine. And I th- hopefully you've seen this really obvious, um, really obvious connection now as to, you know, talking about work, I'm going to eat this. Jesus, this is the work that God has done for us. And it cost, him his li- it cost Jesus his life. God gave his one and only son that we could live. What, what, a, what a job to have done. What a job to have done. And, and we, we thrive and live, live lives to the full as a result of that. Um, so let's be grateful for the, for the master that we have in heaven, who is the risen Jesus, because he's died for us. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.